0: Hello, and welcome back to episode 13 of Society 2.0. I'm your host, Bob Lautenbach, and it is good to be back. I don't know about you, but, you know, the week that goes by between episodes feels like forever sometimes. I hope everyone's doing well. Please do not forget to reach out to me. Send me your hate mail at bob at societywire.net, or you can reach me on Instagram or Twitter at SocietyWire. Pretty exciting episode this week. Got to sit down with Rob McCargo, TEDx speaker and director of AI at PwC. Had an interesting conversation about the future of work and future-proofing staff and their jobs. We also talked a little bit about democratizing AI technology and technology in general to make sure that uh, it's not consolidated into one particular power, one particular country. Uh, Rob's a really interesting guy you should listen to his TEDx talk it's it's got a little bit of humor and a lot of wisdom so definitely check it out when you have some time but before we get started with the interview let's hit the news desk and see what's hot in the world of AI okay so I visited time.com I'm not really time is not the area I usually find interesting AI articles but once in a while there's a gem And there is an article called Artificial Intelligence is Powerful and Misunderstood. Here's how we can protect workers. So the article starts out saying, because AI can outperform humans at routine tasks, provided that the task is in one domain with a lot of data, it is technically capable of displacing hundreds of millions of white and blue collar jobs in the next 15 years or so. So it goes on to say that if you're worried about these types of jobs, the blue and the white collar jobs, don't panic because there's another category of jobs, a much larger category around empathetic and compassionate jobs, such as teaching, nannies and doctors. And these jobs require compassion, trust and empathy, which AI does not have. And even if AI had it and tried to fake it, that nobody would want a chat bot telling them they have cancer or a robot babysitting their children and they said the key to i guess stemming this tide of ai wiping out blue and white collar jobs is that there must be retraining of the workforce so people can do these new or not new these other empathetic jobs and this must be the it says it goes on to say this must be the responsibility not just of the government which can provide subsidies but also of corporation and AI's ultra-wealthy beneficiaries. It goes on to say, as well as job displacement, AI has the potential to multiply inequality, both between the ultra-wealthy and the displaced workers, and also among countries. And we've talked about this here, in that there needs to be a way to democratize the technology, because if one country or several countries own the technology, and it becomes so so powerful, and I don't mean, we're not talking about Skynet here, but it becomes such an advantage to have. And without it, it, it's really going to be hard for anybody to compete. Then it makes countries that are trying to come out of the third world mode, it, it basically sets them there forever. The article goes on to say that in contrast with the U.S. and China, poorer and smaller countries will be unable to reap the economic rewards that will come with AI and less well-placed to mitigate job displacement. And I agree with that. I think that, again, we've talked about this here. If we don't democratize it, if we don't figure out a way to share the technology, there will be countries that are significantly impacted in a negative way. The article was interesting. Again, you can find it on time.com. My my problem with it, I I, the, I guess, yeah, my problems with it are it, it basically says that, you know, people will be displaced and, but we'll be able to retrain them or we should try to retrain them, the government and companies who are reaping the rewards of AI advancements, that these companies should somehow pay for it all. And that at the same time, we should try to look for ways to retrain people for the empathetic or compassionate jobs like teachers and nurses and doctors. I think that's all well and good, but it's a little bit idealistic. And for me, there's a little bit of irony here that they're treating people or thinking about people in a robotic way, as if you could just take somebody who was doing job X and retrain them completely to be a doctor or be a nurse or be a teacher. Uh, And I, I, We're not programmed that way. People take different career paths and do different things because that's what they like to do. In some cases, you do jobs that you don't want to do because you need to. But given the choice, you gravitate towards things that you enjoy. I have a friend who's a mechanic. He loves what he does. Would he want to be a doctor? Would he want to be retrained to be a doctor or a nurse or a teacher? Um, My bet is no. And myself, I'm in the technology consulting arena. I could never be a doctor. I would, you know, if I had somebody, a patient that came in and had cancer, I'd probably bawl my eyes out. So I would not be a, a, a good doctor at all. Teacher, I might see myself as a teacher. But when I talk to different people about how we might address the future of work and the retraining of the, the workforce, again, this is assuming that AI is going to displace as many jobs as some of the forecasts have predicted. If that happens, then obviously we're going to have a big job displacement issue that we're going to need to be, that we're going to need to address. I think that the canned answer or the somewhat canned answer of we'll just do job retraining is a little bit idealistic. I would love to believe it was going to be that easy. Let's simply take people from job A and retrain them for job B. I just don't think that that's a realistic scenario. But this is just one man's opinion. We really don't know what the future is going to hold as it relates to AI automation and job, I don't know, job displacement. So it could be a lot worse than some people are predicting. It could be not nearly as catastrophic as some are predicting, but only time will tell. But I do think it's a good idea that we prepare. uh, And I don't mean be a prepper, but I mean we should prepare. We should look at our educational systems, see how we're preparing the future graduates for what will obviously be a world of automation, a world with AI. It's not going away. It's just how can we adapt? You know, is it uh, obviously, I think we need to reshape some of our curriculum, but we also have to consider, as I said earlier, you know, people don't all want to do one type of job. People aren't going to gravitate toward, toward compassionate jobs simply because that's the way things are going or people aren't all going to try to become data scientists because that's where it's going. The right path is trying to figure out how can we make things work and still allow people to do things that they enjoy? How can we leverage people in existing jobs? So nothing changes. Let's pretend nothing changes at all. AI is just an enabler. It allows us to do things quicker, faster, stronger. There will be some job displacement for sure, but overall, most of us get to stay where we are, but will AI allow us to shift just a little bit, just slightly in that we get rid of the mundane part of what we do and allow us to focus on leadership and creativity and more inspirational tasks or inspirational items. I think there's, there's room for that. I think that that's a, a distinct possibility. If you look at the people that you work with, if you look at the things that you do today Quite a bit of it can be task-driven and mundane, but there's a lot of inspirational stuff. There's a lot of sitting around a room with other people trying to solve problems. And yes, data is a critical piece. Data keeps us honest because we can go with our gut on things, but if the data shows otherwise, you at least know that when you jump, you're jumping with no data that backs it up. But I think it's important to, to keep that gut feel, that past experience as part of the equation. And that's where we come in. I don't think we're ever going to be able to get rid of or, or have technology supplant us. And while we may eliminate the mundane part of what we do, which I think would be awesome, we're always going to be around for the rest of the work, which is the interesting part of the work. So that, that, that gets me excited. And like I said, Rob and I talk about future-proofing the jobs of, of the people coming to work now. So with that said, let's just go ahead and jump into the interview with Rob McCargo. I want to welcome Rob McCargo, TEDx Speaker and Director of AI at PwC. Welcome, Rob.
1: Thank you, Bob. Thanks for having me on the, on the program.
0: No, I'm, I'm glad you had some time to, to uh, uh, meet with us. It's going to be pretty exciting today. So tell everyone a little bit about your journey uh to becoming so engaged in the AI space, uh, even even for PwC and and, and where you are today.
1: Yeah, so I've had a fairly long and I guess to describe it as a circuitous route to, to find find <laughs> AI in my life. Um I I was uh I was a scientist by background, I did microbiology. Uh I then had a, a fairly wide-ranging career encompassing executive search, building boards for companies. Um, working uh, in the humanitarian uh, emergency response sector. So I spent time in West Africa during the Ebola outbreak, which was a fairly exciting uh, assignment. Uh, And then moved into sort of human resources, ops transformation uh, when I joined PwC several years ago. And uh, really, uh, I I was hankering after a meaningful mission in my career. I hadn't quite landed on the thing that I felt was going to create the most efficient impact that I could derive career satisfaction from. So, an opportunity arose a few years ago to get involved in a fairly major rollout of an AI system here internally within the organization, and uh, I managed to uh, move myself into to, to leading on that. And, and then as time's gone by, it's uh, gained sort of significant traction in the markets, huge amount of interest from our clients across all sectors, in the government circles and other stakeholders that's uh, required uh, a huge amount of focus on uh, explaining what the technology is to our customers, what, what the implications are, where the opportunities lie today, and uh, or also where, where the risks potentially sit and how to evolve those. So it's, it's a very broad-ranging role, but it's been a fairly uh, long and winding path to find this as, as my key mission in life.
0: Yeah, to go from uh, basically uh, e- Ebola, Ebola in, in Africa to AI at PwC, that's a, that's a pretty wide journey for sure.
1: Indeed it is. Yeah. Sometimes I have to ask myself how on earth I find myself doing this, but uh, <laughs> always up for a big challenge.
0: So I, I watched uh, your Ted talk and and you mentioned there where when you were a child, you wanted to be Optimus Prime. And uh, I, I actually wanted to be Spider-Man. So I, I, I know exactly how you felt.
1: How, how did that work out for you?
0: It didn't work out at all. And, and that's, that's really the point is that, that you and I both went through that shocking realization at some point that, hey, superhero really isn't in the cards for us. Uh, But I wonder, though, the the, the kids today uh, that are in first grade, they're going to graduate in 2035. And both you and I have young children. And what are your thoughts around that, without some kind of major transformation in our educational system, that these 2035 graduates might have some kind of similar shocking realization that what they expected is not reality because of the wave of AI disruption.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm in two minds, really. On the one hand, you would argue that we haven't seen vast changes in the education system since, since we were kids. Uh, you know, there's, been, there's been some material changes, but not wholesale change. Uh, and therefore, that would give you cause for concern that uh, the pace of change isn't keeping up. On the other hand, you think about what our kids do today. You think about, as they move into the workplace, the technology at the disposal. I'm fairly optimistic, actually, that, that the, uh, the younger generation will get with this program. They're going to be used to working very differently from you and I. They uh, will certainly be uh, much more comfortable with technology. Uh, and some of the, the bright young things we hire, I'm always amazed by how quickly they take to new concepts very, very swiftly. So to a certain extent, uh, I'm, I'm fairly upbeat about the way that they will cope with the future because they're not saddled with the baggage of the past. Um, so I, I'm broadly optimistic, but I don't think we can rely on this just to happen organically. I think there are important changes to take place and there have been somewhat encouraged by the response from uh, the, the governments in, in, around the world in the last 12 months in particular, actually. I think there's been at least some good acknowledgement that a big change is coming, uh, whether or not that's led to concrete action is yet to be seen.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, the future is really unpredictable, but, and there seems to be a wide speculation around the future of work and what will be lost and what might be gained. And, and I think PwC's own report stated that job automation may impact up to 30% of jobs by 2035. But do you think there's some of that, Some inside some of those predictions, there's just a lot of hype around AI and what it might do? It, it's just It just seems like because of the wide predictions, no one really knows, and it, there's a little bit of—I uh, don't want to say hysteria. That's a little bit too much, but I guess hype. Is there is there a lot of hype around AI and what it could lead to?
1: I think when you're speaking about jobs specifically, uh, there was a great piece that um, I think uh, uh, Tech Review did, uh, where they synthesized all the reports they could find in the last five years that tried to forecast the impact of uh, AI and, and automation on the, the world of work, and this wide ranging estimates from the Frey and Osborne report which suggested forty seven percent the OECD at fourteen percent our PwC analysis suggesting thirty percent I think the the, the, the challenge is trying to convey in uh, in a succinct way quite how nuanced this is so whilst it's very easy to uh, to produce headlines that uh, point to this stark uh, uh, sort of numerical number that uh, that suggests the the job apocalypse um, I, I think The the, the more detailed uh, answer is, is I guess, where we're at at the moment, is saying that whilst it's very clear that there's going to be a substantial impact on specific tasks uh, that make up whole jobs, the task composition, um, that's not to say that uh, whilst on the one hand jobs will, of course, be automated, but on the other hand, we're also forecasting a fairly substantial economic boost through the impact that AI has on the economy from uh, driving productivity, from increasing consumption of goods and services, through the ability of AI to hyper-personalize those services. Uh, and with that in mind, it, it brings with it a, a substantial labor demand uh, as well at the same time. And this is before you even get into the, uh, the, the conversation about the, the new categories of jobs that don't yet exist. So our current position is that on the one hand, we see substantial change and substantial impact on existing jobs. We are also saying that if you get public policy right, if you get the adaptations to the education system right, if you get the, uh, the, the approach to workforce strategy right, to embed that approach to lifelong learning, then we think that uh, actually we could net off the job losses with job creation. And the most report, a recent report we focused on China, actually uh, suggested that the Chinese economy could see a significant growth in labor creation um, off the back of the uh, impact of AI.
0: Now, do you think that uh, businesses will be taking an even larger role in retraining, or basically just in, not retraining, but training new new hires into those new roles that have yet to be created? Since we really don't know what they are. And so obviously can't set that up within the educational institutions. It's, I mean, I, as I've seen in the last 25 years, companies have per, per played a bigger role in training the, their staff to do the things that they actually need them to do because the, it's just, they're not ready or prepared fully when they come out of school. And do you see those companies having to play a much larger role in carving out the future for themselves and their employees?
1: I think the way that companies uh, respond to this challenge will be uh, significantly important. And I think at the moment, there's still too much focus on the short term. Um, You can understand why there's significant pressures from cost. Uh, There's significant pressures on uh, getting your workforce strategy right this year, next year, the next few years. And this is uh, a multi-generational impact. Some of the effects from this might not be felt for 10 or 15 or 20 years. And this often reaches beyond the uh the, the you know the, the the purview and the perspective of current c-suite executives. but the decisions made today do have profound implications for the future, and I think what you'll start seeing is uh is certain corporations just taking this uh perspective from a slightly longer term view because um, it, it it comes back to a few bigger picture issues um purpose uh, we see um, a lot of our best talent coming to us wanting to understand do we live our values do we live our uh do we live our purpose um how are we going to future-proof their careers if they join us and uh i think that's given us a lot of pause of thought to think about how do we uh future-proof the staff how do we give them that access to lifelong learning so i think um i, I think it will take some time but I, th- I am starting to see some organizations uh moving the dial on this um because we can't just let this happen by default. We can't just rely upon governments to design this. Governments are locked in these electoral cycles for four or five years, whether it's the US or the UK or beyond. Uh, and uh, it, it's a like longer term than that. I don't think we're gonna see the real impacts of this in the next uh, few years or so.
0: Yeah, and it sounds like it, this kind of falls under the goal of what I've heard you call responsible AI around job automation and reducing bias. What do you see as, as the largest obstacles at, to reducing the fear and, and also building trust and, and setting a, a better course for the future around responsible AI?
1: Yeah, I, I think uh, there's, there's a huge amount to, to unpack in that. So I think uh, to, to take it uh, a theme at a the time, uh, I think, first of all, uh, there's a huge amount of uh, misunderstanding uh, around the technology itself. Uh, I've seen dozens of different uh, uh, descriptions of what people think AI is, um, and that's before you even get through to the uh, the way that uh, the narrative has developed in recent years. Whether it's in the press, whether it's fueled by, by marketing hype in vendors, so we ha- we ha- we have we are faced with a, a fairly binary view of AI at the moment. On the one hand, there's this uh, tech utopian, tech optimistic approach to unleashing the power of this tech. Uh, it will work out all right in the end, and I think the cracks have started show in that in the last year in particular. Uh, on the other hand, there is this really quite uh, negative and dystopian uh, narrative that's come through the job apocalypse, the, the singularity, the, uh, the advent of artificial general intelligence um, and uh, you know the, uh, the impact on on, on humanity in, in, the, in the generation to come. And I think if you're sitting there in, in, in business, thinking about the decisions you're making today, uh, if you're sitting there as a government official, thinking about public policy, I don't think either of those distinct narratives necessarily help you to responsibly move the dial on this. And I, I'm far more interested in how this technology is going to impact us today, the next few years ahead, uh, the opportunities that are already starting to come through. But the very, very real and tangible examples of where this is already not working out well, uh, there's not a week that's gone by in the last year where there hasn't been yet another story in the the tech press about uh, algorithmic bias, uh, societal harm, uh, privacy implications, cybersecurity risks, regulatory breach, uh, fueled by uh, inappropriate uh, adoption of uh, machine learning or different forms of AI. So really, my, my view is, is around uh, how, do we, how do we move the, uh, the uh, I guess, the confidence of executives to adopt this technology to drive real tangible business benefits, to drive revenue growth, to cut costs, to reduce risk in their enterprise, but not in a way that exposes their businesses to additional risk to avoid the unintended consequences of uh, walking in blind to this sort of technology adoption. And to, to, to feel the benefits coming through. For that, for me, defines responsible AI. And uh, I think that there's going to be a huge focus on this in the years ahead as governments start to grapple with the, uh, the need for potential regulation, uh, the need for standards, the need for professionalization of the workforce, the need to put the right so governance and rigor in place uh, in terms of corporate governance in organizations. That The list of things that you have to do in addition to developing the tech is vast. On the other hand, this is a great opportunity in business. There's a a, a great demand, I think, in the years to come for a new breed of professionals that understand the technology but can uh, put the right, uh, uh, I guess, rigor in place from their subject matter expertise, that the communications professional that can articulate this in a way that wins hearts and minds in the workforce, the uh, the human resources professional that's thinking through the, the very human impact on this technology compliance experts, the people specializing in the legal profession, uh, and uh, one very close to one of our pillars in, in the audit and assurance space, uh, a need to build that level of assurance into the, uh, the technology itself. So huge risks, very real things happening today that are both positive and or negative, but some really interesting developments coming through that give us comfort and confidence to think that uh, this uh, is something that we can uh, develop on our terms and won't just happen to us.
0: Do you think that there's enough time being spent or fo- or focus on the ethics of AI and, and both at at, at, a, at a corporate governance level and but also at the, the governmental level to to decide, you know, how should we proceed N- not to go into the dystopian world of, you know, artificial general intelligence and and, you know, sentience or whatever, but more or less what are the ethics around using it for the for the reasons you mentioned, you know, the bias um, privacy, etc. Do you think that there that there's enough focus right now, both on the corporate side and and the government side?
1: I'm slightly biased because I feel like I spend all day, every day talking about <laughs> that. <laughs> so uh, maybe not a good bellwether for you. Um, uh, I think there's been a huge increased focus on this. Um, I think there's been a huge diversity of where the focus is coming from. This is not just a conversation that's residing in academic circles or, or the tech companies. Uh, I, I speak with regulators, standards, bodies, politicians, uh, educators, the list goes on. Uh, uh, I even met some, some priests and bishops to talk about the theological implications of it. Uh, in that's
0: year. interesting. I've not thought Very, of that yet. That's pretty interesting.
1: Well, what one, one, uh, one blog to look out for is by the Bishop of Oxford who uh, wrote a great blog called the 10 commandments of AI. So, uh, Maybe we could share that with your listeners afterwards. Yeah, definitely, it was, it was a good piece actually. Um, so, so the great thing is, is it's brought certainly from the UK perspective and a few other countries. I think there's been a uh, a coming together of quite a, a thoughtful community and diverse community of practitioners across a number of different uh, areas to contribute to challenge and to uh, start putting the the sort of governance in place. Um, to give you some idea, in the UK, we had a great House of Lords report on ai that really started to look at the ethical issues um, we've had some great work happening in organizations like the world economic forum countries around the world for example have been uh, quite focused on this uh, canada uh, this month alone dubai have published some thoughts on this so there's some great work coming through actually i mean I'm, I'm quite encouraged but the big challenge now is how do we see this prioritized in enterprise and business adoption of the tech uh, how how is this going to be hardwired into businesses to to think this through um to augment their existing corporate governance and, and, and risk management um and not seen as a kind of a bolt on separate um sort of one off thing to do to say i've ticked the AI ethics box i 'm all good now that 's the big challenge i think how do we get businesses to mainstream this into their into their thinking
0: yeah and a, and a couple of the people that i've interviewed in the past one of the big I guess I won't say concerns, but challenges would be how do we ensure that we're, there's some form of democratization of the technology so that the advantages are spread across the globe versus making it even harder for countries to come out of their economic situations? And, and do you see, a, 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 at least at the, at the world level, you said you talked about the World Economic Forum, that there is a concern that c- countries who can take a lead on this will just basically far surpass everyone else, leaving people even further behind than they already are.
1: Yeah, there are very real concerns about that. To give you some idea, um, we published a report at the World Economic Forum, I think it was about a year ago or so, that tried to uh, estimate the economic impact of AI through those productivity and consumption side effects. Um, So overall, we were saying that by... 2030, we believe that AI could add an additional 15.7 trillion US dollars to the world economy. Um, But within that, a substantial winner in that would be China, who we believe by 2030 could see an additional 26% GDP boost through AI adoption. Uh, North America, no surprise, of course, uh, around about 14.5%. Here in my home country, the UK, around about 10%. But then, other economies around the world seeing a, a, a lower, somewhat lower in many cases, uh, you know, benefit from this. So there is a concern it does polarise the, uh, the 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 winners and losers. There's also been a, a lot of uh, uh, press and coverage about where political leaders have referred to AI nationalism or the the, the, you know, the AI arms race, uh, whether it's in uh, China, Russia, the US, across Europe, etc., which. Isn't necessarily helpful. I don't think it's uh, a zero-sum game. Uh, many of these researchers are working collaboratively together, so it's much more of an entanglement um, of R and D. But you are very right. I, I think there is a genuine concern that the the, the, the the monetary gains that are likely to flow through could not could could lead to a point where they're not uh, um, appropriately distributed throughout the entirety of society, and this has led to some really interesting developments around uh, what could be the, the future model of uh, of wealth distribution. Uh, in, in the US, of course, there's a, there's a chap who's uh, apparently standing for, uh, for the, the 2020 presidential race, Andrew Yang, that's uh, standing on a platform of universal basic income. Um, there's a number of other models and pilots underway to think about how that might through, come through. Could there be changes to the taxation system? Um, a lot of this points back to the, the, the big tech companies around what's their duty of care to think about that. And uh, and on the other hand, actually, the, the, when you talk about democratization of tech, uh, it's around who gets access to the tech. Uh, one positive development that's really accelerated in the last two years in particular is the the price point of technology such as AI. I think long gone are the days where it requires a multi-million dollar enterprise investment to... Uh, to, to, to build this technology, uh, to, uh, most, uh, purposes, uh, the technology is available for free in open source. Uh, you're playing, you're paying for a you know, fairly powerful, uh, cloud computing. Um, but you need different assets at your disposal. You need vast qualities of good quality data. You need the right talent. So there is an issue around, I think, where the talent resides in the world economy as well. And, uh, I think that's, uh, A bit of a shortfall at the moment in 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 many settings.
0: Yeah, I I look at it. I try to be optimistic about it and think that as the cost of tech is driven down and more of tech, specifically AI, is is being pushed out to the edge, and around seventy percent of the world has access to smartphones, or not maybe not all as smart as others, uh, but. They're driving technology is being drive, driven more out to the edge, even on devices. So as we do that, I think that it will help democratize access to AI because it will be put on smaller and smaller and more inexpensive devices. But I think that that might be just a hope of mine. I'm not sure. And because and, I'm really concerned more about you know the medical aspects of it, because there's so many advances happening in the medical arena with leveraging AI, machine learning, that would be very beneficial to, you know, really spread that out across the world and make it accessible to everyone. I mean, you yourself were, had worked in, in, in the, uh, with Ebola, and in, in I think you said Africa, and I, I, one of the, my other interviewees is, is heavily involved in Zika and Ebola out, outbreaks and helping to use or leverage technology around predicting outbreaks and how to manage outbreaks. So I think it's going to be important to be able to get access to that technology for everyone across the world. That's a little bit of my soapbox, but um, <laughs> it, it, it's critical, I think, if we're going to really succeed and, and not make it you know, all in one bucket within co- countries.
1: Indeed, yeah. And health, healthcare is in particular a, a, a very exciting area. And uh, yeah, I mean, on the one hand, uh, I was drawn to it and I did think back to uh, how How could this have changed the game during that global health emergency? Um, It it certainly could have uh, made better sense of the uh, vast amount of data being collected, I would have thought, to discern some of the epidemiological patterns that were coming through. But realistically, on the ground, there were times when I was sitting there in places like Sierra Leone having to climb a tree with the cell phone to get a signal. So it wow. wasn't much in the way of data transfer going on either. So I think that sometimes there's a way of over-engineering some of the solutions, which still actually in the main does suggest that I think the uh, the, the growth of uh, mobile technology is uh, is is positive into some of the emerging markets. And I think this, this does move through to uh, a particularly interesting area of our work around the uh I sort of tag it as the ai for good space but um i think you know things that are happening in the world now some <clears throat> some great um developments around the way that ai can be harnessed to accelerate um progress towards achieving the un's sustainable development goals um of which healthcare for all is is one of the most exciting ones there as well uh but also affecting things like uh you know monitoring deforestation the state of the oceans and uh climate change and uh, and then into areas like education etc so i'm very excited about uh, about uh, you know the opportunity to solve real problems using the tech not just think about how do you sell more advertising and uh, i think back to that hankering after the uh, the mission uh, one of the big uh, events in my life was uh, very sadly uh, losing my uh, my inspirational mother to uh, uh, what we call motor neuron disease i think in the us you call it als mm-hmm. um 15 years ago, and uh, thinking through now already what we're seeing here, certainly in in some organisations I know in the UK, uh, what uh, machine learning and other techniques are offering in terms of the acceleration of, say, drug discovery for rare diseases. And in fact, one company in the UK is uh, already leading some promising uh, signs they might even be able to uh, accelerate progress towards treatment of ALS, which uh, would be uh, super exciting. So yeah, so, so how do we how do we uh, put the right controls and the right processes and the right education and standards in place to allow us to really start motoring on and solving some of these grand challenges? It is really exciting. What a, a fantastic uh, place to be, trying to to help uh, organisations achieve these.
0: No, I agree. Now, not to not to dive into politi- politics at all, but do you, is there? Do you feel that maybe that Brexit could either help or hinder? Or has an opportunity for either the EU or or the UK to help advance or or help progress AI in either, way, or has no effect at all.
1: Um, yeah, I, I, I starting to comment on areas outside my, uh, my 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 specific area of study, but um, I think from what I see anecdotally, uh, I see the UK working very closely, and cooperatively with uh, with counterparts in the EU uh, anyway, uh, and that appears to be continuing and that also extends out to all manner of other uh, territories globally so for example uh, I'm associated with the, the IEEE's um, uh, initiative on, on AI ethics uh, which brings in practitioners from, from many many dozens of countries including China uh, there's, there's work with the World Economic Forum the Partnership on AI and all manner of other ones starting to draw collaboration together so no i'm finding cross-border cooperation actually quite positive um the uk and japan have just announced a, a joint initiative to look at some of these issues um uh, here in the uk we've uh, we've got a number of new bodies that have been set up including a, a center for data ethics and innovation that uh, will be very outwardly looking with uh, regards to um, other countries' endeavors in this space, so uh, it's one area I'm, I'm fairly positive about.
0: Yeah, it seems like technology or, and, and science tend to, you know, rise above the fray of politics and work together regardless of what's going on, which is always a positive sign, in my opinion. Indeed. So, what are some of the? I mean, as we talked about, AI is like a really broad term, and a lot of people, it's a hard, sometimes hard to define for people. So what are some of the myths that you see out there when you're when you're traveling about and meeting with people about AI?
1: I think there's a um a, a definition issue first of all because um it, it certainly if it's uh, going down the media route there's uh, uh it is far easier to sell copy with uh, the the more negative stories and uh, one of the common tropes is to uh, associate AI with uh uh the Terminator. So <laughs> uh, if you follow me on social media, you'll see me constantly bemoaning yeah. the the state of uh, uh, imagery associated with AI. And uh, yeah, with it's that in Skynet mind... Skynet uh,
0: everywhere, yeah.
1: Indeed, yeah. yeah. And and, and with that in mind, uh, just a, a quick uh, recommendation for listeners to follow the work of the, the Leverhulme Centre for the Future of Intelligence, who, in partnership with the Royal Society here in the UK, have launched a great report on AI narratives. How those have evolved, how important they are to uh, to develop and uh, to gain public buy-in as well. So, so um, th- th- there's uh, first of all a kind of a narrative issue that uh, I think is uh, often unhealthy um, and sets either false expectations or sows seeds of fear inappropriately. Um, so, I think I think that's the chapter one of the book. I think when you're bringing it down to a level, I think there's no doubt that the uh, that the the marketing-fueled hype hasn't done anyone any favors, and I think you've seen that in other uh, technology domains, such as blockchain and 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 drones and VR and beyond as well. In in, in the last year or two, specifically, um, so charting a calm, sober course down the middle that demystifies the fear and the hype, and uh, you know translates to keep people engaged but in a way that sort of uh, represents where the technology is at and where it will go in the next few years is uh, is important and then of course you know i, I i'm also fascinated by the work of uh, many fantastic uh, academics looking at the longer range picture of existential risk and uh, artificial general intelligence um brilliant work by the likes of you know professor stuart russell i've had the pleasure of meeting a few times and, and other counterparts in the field the future of uh, Life Institute, a Future Humanity Institute, great work from these people. But um, where we are now is this technology is not very smart and it could scale to become very smart. But I'm concerned that sometimes it can over up the oxygen of publicity to take attention away from the very real impact the technology is having on society and business today um, in areas that uh, potentially are slightly invisible. You know, a lot of people refer to uh, much more visceral and physical uh, a- adaptations of AI, such as driverless cars, autonomous vehicles, et cetera. But uh, for me, it's that pervasive, invisible effect of AI on uh, areas such as, say, discrimination in recruiting algorithms, whether it's in uh, uh, you know, uh, criminal justice, bail conditions for uh, for prisoners, et cetera. Um, there's, there's a whole host of uh, applications already in flight, um, where AI is having an effect that uh, I, I, I'm keen to ensure that there's uh, sufficient focus on and not just on the long-range uh, potential effects of uh, artificial general intelligence.
0: Do you, th- you brought up uh, about the bias piece, but do you think that if we get it right in terms of the bias part, removing it as much as possible, that it can really help us in, in the, as you pointed out, the criminal justice system in HR recruiting to, to look for the specifics of what we really want versus introducing our own personal, um, you know, unconscious bias to everything that we do, or are we ever going to be able to do it at all? Because it's just an unconscious bias. Is there a way to, to eliminate it because we basically have humans checking humans, checking humans, putting in, creating the algorithms. Is there a way to totally remove bias from what we do?
1: Well, I don't think I don't think you can ever entirely eliminate it. I think it's more about mitigation um, of 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 bias. And you're right; uh, uh, many many human led activities are incredibly susceptible to bias and uh, um, uh, cognitive dissonance. Uh, thinking about the uh, sheer scale of the number of people that apply for jobs to work with us, um, huge teams of people processing those resumes all day long. Undoubtedly, um, they can you can you honestly say that every single one is treated consistently and fairly? You'd hope so, but you can't guarantee it. Right? Um, very very uh, 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 f- famous or infamous research around uh, uh, judges' behaviour in court on sentencing, depending on whether it's just before his or her lunch break or just after when they might be more benevolent. Interesting. Uh, there's, there's some, some eye-watering examples, uh, a good um, accessible book for readers to follow, to, to pick up is, uh, is one uh, called um, Hello World by Hannah Fry, uh, which is recently published in the UK a few months ago, uh, which talks through some of these, uh, these stories of, uh, of, 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 of how it's, uh, started unfolding on society and very, very real use cases. So, yeah, so, so the, 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 poss- the opportunity is immense for how uh, artificial intelligence and related technologies could be harnessed to make life much more equitable and fair and consistent and better outcomes for all stakeholders and participants in society, with a huge caveat and a but there that if it's just unleashed without the right level of rigor and planning and uh, oversight and inspection, uh, it could erode the situation even further. So it's this really fine blade on the edge of this sword around uh, of uh, the positive and the negative effects of this. So uh, the more people know about it, the more people are, are aware of this, the more that uh, development teams can be held to account, the more people that can ask the hard questions around just because we can do this. Should we do this? The more chance we have of pushing this over that side of the sword to, to the positive side.
0: Yeah, no, it, it's interesting. I, one of the things I, I'm somewhat, I don't know if I'm concerned about it, but it's just trusting AI so much where it, it, it's not really good at context. And so, for instance, on the HR part where we're, we're scanning through potential candidates, you, you know, as well as I do, people, some people write really well, resumes, you know, poorly and other ones write them extremely well, but you, we, you might find that there's a gem there once you sit down and meet with them. And so you could try to have an unbiased algorithm that says, look for these specific skills and only these skills and if they're worded this way or these words, but then lose people potentially because you didn't get a chance to meet them. Um, and the same thing happens today when you look at a resume. As a person, you know, you forget the machine. We could dismiss someone just because they spelled something incorrectly or whatever. But it's that, you know, overall, like just trust the AI. A, and if it didn't spit out the results, then therefore we won't look at them. Do you know what I mean?
1: Yeah. Uh, and if you're simply um, applying AI to poor processes, then that is more likely to exacerbate the uh, poor outcomes. So when it comes to hiring, uh, Maybe this could be the death knell of the uh, of the resume or uh, yeah, for the future. So already we uh, have implemented um, uh, AI augmented video interviewing technology that can read micro expressions and gestures of candidates' faces when we're hiring students, for example, um, to unearth those people that might uh, historically have been weeded out because they're not that orthodox. And uh, trying to make the system fairer, but 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 huge part there for. Um, use cases um, of substantial consequence, like whether someone gets a job, whether someone gets promoted, whether someone has this disease uh, diagnosed, whether uh, it's a decision to invest a billion dollars in this stock or that stock, uh, whether there's a strong regulatory uh, requirement in the process, then that does require the human in the loop to inspect and uh, give that confidence to to ensure that uh, you know, there's uh, an inspectability and uh, transparency to the process.
0: Agreed. Agreed. I guess the, the final thing is what, is, what excites you about what, what's happening in the AI space? What, what do you see and what gets you excited every day about what you're doing?
1: Quite a lot, really. I think the, uh, the, the, there's never a day that goes by when there's not a, a, an amazing um, breakthrough um an application whether it's in you know it could, could be quite niche areas but uh, i think there's one about uh, uh, monitoring rhino poachers in the serengeti in africa <laughs> you know mm-hmm. there's, uh, there's there's uh, there's people applying this to very real problems at the moment um uh, and in a way that uh, i mentioned before um it you know that people have far greater access to this technology to spin up these proofs of concept and and, and test their their validity. So, um, so, so really exciting applications coming through. Um, I think there's something about the, the diversity and the variety of who now is participating in this grand conversation. As I briefly touched upon before, um, the, uh, this no longer is the preserve of the, uh, of the niche academic and technology community. Um, this is bringing people in from all parts of society, um, uh, I, I get the opportunity to talk to school children about this, to business students, uh, to educators and politicians and beyond. And uh, everyone's interested. Everyone's got a right to participate. Everyone's got an opinion. Everyone um, should demand the access to contribute to the way this technology is shaped because it will affect everybody so substantially in the generation to come. So, so the, the exciting thing for me is, is, is that ability to bring everyone into the tent to uh, decide how we shape this. And uh, I think there's a lot of work to do to get the mechanism right for how we enable widespread participation in the years to come and not allow this to be just uh, defined by an elite bunch of people, maybe how technology has been uh, developed in, in the previous generation.
0: No, that's well said. I, I agree. Well, Rob, I really thank you for your time. I, this has been a great conversation. Appreciate you carving out the, the hour for us today. Again, I I wish you all the the best in the the coming year. And Happy New Year, too, by the way. I didn't say Happy New Year.
1: Happy New Year to you, too, Bob. And thanks so much for your time today. It's been a great conversation.
0: Thank you. I really enjoyed speaking with Rob. Great guy. Again, check out his TED Talk. As I said before, has a little bit of humor and a lot of wisdom. I would love to get your feedback, your comments, suggestions. So please send me your hate mail at bob at societywire.net Or you can reach me on Instagram or Twitter at SocietyWire. And as always, I'll see you next week.